www.ccbp.net. The Parish Church of St. Helena and Community Bible Church of Beaufort would like to extend a special invitation to you to attend our joint anniversary celebration, which will be held on Thursday, April 26th and Friday, April 27th. Both nights of worship and celebration will commence at 6.45 p.m. at Community Bible Church of Beaufort and will feature pastor, author, and teacher Dr. Tony Evans. Admission is free, and we would love to see you there. For more information, go to cbcofbeaufort.org. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live. A live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free. 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible Line. And as always, we welcome your questions. If you're studying some passage of Scripture that you'd like to discuss or maybe are challenged by it or some personal issue in your life and ministry that you'd like biblical counsel on, Well, if we can help, by God's grace, we will do our best. Again, the local phone number is 525-1859. Our toll-free number for those outside of the state of South Carolina is 877-WAGP-980. 877, our call letters, WAGP-980. Or you can reach us directly here in the studio via email. And the email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here. Indeed, Pastor, and we've received a number of emails, uh, so uh, let's get to them right now. This person in Beaufort writes, I'm interested in possibly having some sort of Bible study to possibly introduce the gospel to some of my neighbors. I've been hearing a lot about a program that's being used worldwide and now locally to do just such a thing. It's called the Alpha Program. When I began looking into the program, I became alarmed and concerned that some of my Christian friends are a part of this. I wondered if you knew anything about it, and how should I respond when asked about it? Also, do you have any suggestions for a short introductory program to the gospel? Well, we always give preference to live callers, and we've got a live caller standing by now, so let's go to them, and then we'll get back to this Alpha um, course question. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, good morning. Yeah, thank Uh, you for calling. Go ahead. Sure. My question is, um, if you could discuss the biblical basis for war, in light of the fact that we've uh, been involved in a few in the last decade or so, and also if you could discuss the uh, justification for taking life during wartime, and if you don't mind, I'd like to hang up and listen. Sure, that'd be great. Uh, I have a whole message on this, too, for the longer answer, where I deal with the subject of war, capital punishment, and the like, but question is, do we have the right to take a human life? And there are some Christians in the history of the church who have said definitively no. And some will quote the verse, thou shall not kill from Exodus chapter 20. Uh, The challenge in the old English of the King James, newer translations say thou shall not murder, is that in old English there is one word for taking a life. It was kill. And so 
uh, people would say, well, it says you shall not kill. And so to take a life is to uh, do something that God prohibits in the Decalogue, and therefore we should never do it. Well, again, if someone went on just into the next two chapters of the book of Exodus, after the, the Decalogue, by the way, is found in two chapters, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy Five, But in the next two chapters of Exodus, God goes on and he describes the fact that uh, there are times when you can take a human life legitimately. So he says someone's breaking into your house at night. You can see your life is threatened. Uh, it's okay to take that person out. But if someone breaks into your house and you can see your life is not threatened, then it's wrong. Uh, you know, there was a case that hit Texas uh, a couple of years ago where this guy calls uh, 911 and says, hey, someone's breaking into my next-door neighbor's house, and, um, you know, I, I'm going to shoot him. And the police officer said, please don't shoot him. We'll have help there on the way. I'm, I'm going to shoot this guy. And he ended up taking him out and killing him. And a jury acquitted him. Well, the jury was wrong, and that's unfortunate. But that's the day that we live in where there is gross biblical ignorance Uh, He may have been legally right under Texas law, but he was morally wrong because his life was not threatened. So someone was breaking into the next door neighbor's house. No one else was threatened. He was watching the house while the guy was away on vacation, but he had no legitimate right in which to take that person's life. And he did something that was evil. So there is a distinction between murder and killing. God prohibits murder, but he does not prohibit murder. Um, uh, killing or taking a life when your life is being threatened. There are many passages that teach that, but God initially institutes the whole idea of man being able to take another life as early as Genesis 9. And so God tells Noah when they come off the ark that there are certain conditions. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Uh, So there's cases in which a person can take another person's life. And if you look at Genesis 9 carefully, and I have a whole sermon on that, you'll discover that that authority is given in that context to the government. Other passages in the New Testament that reaffirm this would be a passage like Romans 13. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it, the authority that God has established, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. And in a sermon I preached about a year and a half ago, um, dealing with the right of government uh, for just war, I deal with this tax and walk through the whole phraseology of the sword and walk through Old and New Testament usage of it, that it becomes clearly in the historical context a symbol of authority to take a life, that God allows the taking of a life by government. And he also gives that right to an individual when your life is being threatened. And most governments recognize that and give freedom of their citizens when your life is being threatened. So if someone's coming in, breaking into your house tonight and they've got a a, a gun and they're going to shoot your child, what are you to do? Sit back as a pacifist uh, and do nothing? Uh, if it means for you to stop them is that you have to take their life, then God gives you a legitimate right to do that. And what he does 
individually he does corporately through governments as well. And so, you know, would you want to live in a town where there are no police? Well, of course not. Why? Well, because man's sinful, and if there's no police and no check and balance to stop evil, then evil will have a holiday. Well, that's exactly the reason God instituted government in Genesis 9 and why it's repeated in the New Testament. God gives that authority to government. And really all an army is is a larger police force. That's all it really is. And and the principal role of government is not to make highways and to give health care and food stamps to its people. The principal role of government is to praise good and to punish evil. That's their role. And um, when we ignore that and we say, as some people are doing today, well, we need to, you know, cut the funds to the military and, you know, maybe pour these funds in this area over here then they're really missing the purpose of government. The purpose of government is to protect its people, uh, to protect freedom, and to protect life and health. And so that principle is restated in Romans 13. And it's an important principle. Now, there are pacifists, um, you know, through the ages, you know, you've got your uh, Christians in Eastern Europe and vir- virtually all the Soviet countries of the former Soviet Union, uh, the Christians, the evangelicals are pacifists. They think it's wrong for a Christian to fight in a, a war. Well, they're wrong. Uh, they're, they're just mistaken, and church history is against them. And there's always been some pockets of Christians. You know, the uh, the Amish and the Mennonites have their their primary argument is, well, if you really believe people are lost and on their way to an eternity without God, then um, why would you want to shoot a man and send him to hell? Well, listen, if a man won't get right facing death square in the eyes, he'll never get right. God used the thief on the cross uh, as he was facing death, and God used it to get his life right. Uh, There are a lot of foxhole conversions that are true and legitimate and not just foxhole conversions. Uh, God will often use a man facing the potential uh, visit with his maker in the near future as a genuine motivation for repentance. When John the Baptist was uh, giving a baptism of repentance and there were people, soldiers from the Roman army who came to him who listened and heard his message, he didn't say to him, well, quit the army. No, he he said, be good soldiers in the army. And then he gave them some parameters of some things that they should and shouldn't do. He recognized that there is just war. And by the way, this is why it's so important that we have military leaders who do not indiscriminately commit the lives of young men and women uh, in a situation that is not just. It's essential that you have a president in this country who serves as our commander-in-chief, who is governed by certain moral principles in making decisions of when to put someone in harm's way. And if we don't do that, then we have real problems in in our government. And this is why it's important for, for God's people to speak up and to be involved in this whole process of of election. It's part of uh, rendering to Caesars what is Caesars, is that Christians get out and vote and have their voice heard and, and look for men of moral principle. They may not be born-again Christians, but they need to be men of moral principle if they're going to make decisions to put people in in harm's way. And, and this is an important question that 
obviously when someone goes into the military, they need to ask and answer for themselves. Many years ago in the first Gulf War, and it happened again a second time at the second Gulf War, I had a, the first time I had an F-18 pilot come in and say, you know, I'm just not sure I can go over. They're asking me to deploy next week and, you know, drop bombs on people. I, don't, I said, well, why did you sign up in the military? Well, I didn't think I'd ever be in a war, and there really hadn't been any serious conflict since Vietnam, and so most of them hadn't been in combat situations. I said, well, that's an important question you should have asked and answered then, just as a matter of integrity, uh, and in light of what you were promising to do in the defense of your nation. Uh, So just war is permissible. Listen to my hour-long sermon. That's the short answer. Listen to the hour-long sermon from Romans 13, where I deal with uh, biblical principles for war. I think you'll find it helpful. Thanks for the question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and uh, we did get an email, as I said earlier, this person is interested in having a Bible study, and they were looking at something called the Alpha Program. But when they dug deeper into it, they became alarmed about it, and um, we're wondering if you knew anything about it and how they should be responding about uh, when they're asked about it. Also, do you have any suggestions for a short introductory program to the gospel that would be easy to invite neighborhood women to? Uh, this person wants to reach out to show them the great love and devotion our or their church has for Jesus and that it is well-grounded in Bible truths. Well, it's a great question. Um, you know, there are vehicles and tools that God has used to bring people to Christ, and just because they have produced results doesn't necessarily mean that they're the best tools. So, you know, you had Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart in the 1980s uh, who were living immoral, godless lifestyles, uh, and people were coming to Christ through Jimmy Swaggart's large group evangelistic meetings and through Jim Baker's uh, called the PTL, Praise the Lord Club, um, people through that television ministry were coming to Christ all the while he's visiting prostitutes and having an affair. Well, you know, again, God is sovereign and God uses sometimes less than great instruments to accomplish his will and his purposes, sometimes even unbelievers. In fact, Jim Baker, after he went to prison for fraud and uh, after he was there for eight years, he said in prison that he recognized he wasn't even a true believer and that he was converted while in prison. So, again, what people do with something like the Alpha Program, they'll say, well, you know, we had the Alpha Program in our church, and, you know, some people found Christ. It must be a good program. Not necessarily. I, I So here's my reluctancy in endorsing the Alpha Program. My reluctancy is based on the fact that its leader and founder is also the one who's associated with the Toronto Blessing Movement, where uh, people bark like dogs and laugh like monkeys and everything else, and it's absolute folly in in craziness. Um, I think some people have found the Lord because of the Alpha Ministry. Why? Because they're in liberal churches, which for the most part— uh, don't teach the Bible, and for whatever reason, this ministry has made its way into some of those churches. But there are so many other better choices that are available to you. In fact, there's a lady who's now in heaven, uh, Pat Goodison. She came to me a few years back and said, hey, I want to get a bunch of women down at Fripp Island. They've never studied the Bible, and I want to help them you know, learn the Bible, hopefully lead some people to Christ. Do you have a suggestion? I said, sure. And I recommended that she get the 10 basic steps to Christian maturity, 
Uh, and the first one in this series is called The Uniqueness of Jesus. And so she started working through that. She had 10 women who came to it, all of them unchurched, none of them born again. And in the process, some women found Christ as Lord and Savior. So, you know, God, I think, has provided for the church some excellent Bible studies. Here's the thing is that when you're dealing in a Bible study situation and format, uh, my suggestion to you is that you don't create an eternal Bible study. You know, sometimes, and this is true even for Christian people, we're going to have a Bible study at our house. We're going to meet Tuesday nights at, you know, 9 o'clock from 9 to 10. We'd like you to come. And, well, how long is it? You know, is it like going to last six months or six years or 60 years? Or, you know, when you have a starting and ending point, it's usually more motivational. And, two, it gives people the grace to, to make a commitment that they can keep. And so when you're dealing especially with unchurched or non-Christian people and you're trying to get them into a Bible study format, then you might consider like a five-week Bible study. When I was the director of executive ministries in Dallas, we would do these um, dinner parties uh, where we'd bring in someone very well-known and famous. And and it was aimed at reaching CEOs of major corporations. And then we would, in the home of a born-again Christian CEO, we'd invite as a follow-up, we might have two, 300 people at a large dinner party. Uh, then we would do a follow-up in select homes where there would be a dinner party. And then I would invite them to a five-week Bible study. And I used a little booklet called The Five Steps to Christian Growth. Um, I used that on another occasion. I had written my own five-week series Bible studies, and I, and I talked about the first week, how do we know the Bible is true? Second week, and, and in that, by the way, I shared the plan of salvation. I used Isaiah 53, and one of the arguments for uh, the fact that we know the Bible, Bible to be true is fulfilled prophecy. The Bible is the only book ever written on the face of the earth in all of human history that has fulfilled prophecy. Only the Bible can claim that. And so we looked at one example from Isaiah 53, which, by the way, contains the plan of salvation. Another week we talked about who is Jesus Christ. And we looked at the claims he made about himself, uh, what his enemies said about him and so forth. And, and then we talked about what is the significance of that. A third week we talked about what does it mean to be born again. My, my, my point is, is we had a plan. It was five weeks what I discovered is that there were people whom uh, wanted more, and I would meet with them individually where I might take them through the plan of salvation, uh, even outside of the group, and answer questions. But uh, again, uh, there's the five steps to Christian growth, and there's the 10 basic steps to Christian maturity. The first one in that series is called The Uniqueness of Christ. That would be a great five-week Bible study in and of itself. So I would start there, but I would stay away from the alpha thing because what can happen is somebody says, oh, you know, this guy wrote this material. I want to find out more about him. And then they'll get into a lot of bad, controversial doctrine, and uh, it, they'll be more confused than they will uh, be helped. Very good. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Now, our next two questions were actually sent by the same person within a matter of a few minutes, and I think they really relate to one another, so I'm going to go ahead and share them okay. both with you. This That'd person writes, I've been serving the Lord for over 20 years. The last two years have been a struggle with my marriage, my children that need the Lord, my health. I've noticed that these hardships have affected my love and tenderness with Jesus. And I'd like to know if uh, this is normal and what can I do to get back to where I was? And in a 
a prior email, he had even included that there was no known sin in his life. But uh, he then kind of sent this as a replacement. But then he writes in another one, I know the fruit of the Spirit includes joy and peace. And the Bible says that God gives a peace that passes understanding. But why do I struggle with so many fears and worries? I've often questioned my salvation because I haven't experienced the peace God promised. Could you give me some advice? Well, let me suggest that you go to searchthescriptures.org, all one word. Jesus said, search the scriptures, they speak of me. Searchthescriptures.org, the new website went up on Monday officially, and people can go there and click on the presentation that I just recently gave a couple of weeks ago in church, uh, Are You a Spirit-Filled Christian? And you can watch it on video, or you can download it into your computer. Uh, you, you've really said a lot just in the way you phrased the question and that I think when you look at your life, you're saying, well, there's no, you know, known sin. Well, a lot depends on how you define sin. And again, I, I walk through this in the message. There are, there are four commands in the New Testament that relate to the Christian's responsibility towards God, the Holy Spirit. And two that I highlight, I highlight all four, but two that I highlight is uh, grieve not the spirit. And that is in the context of using your tongue in a wicked way, Ephesians 4. Uh, It deals with what we might call sins of commission, uh, doing things that we shouldn't do. But then we also deal with uh, quench not the spirit. That deals more in the positive realm with sins of omission things that we ought to be doing. So, for instance, um, in the positive realm, right before he says, do not quench the spirit, in the context he says, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So while you may not be watching porn on the internet, you may neither be giving thanks in all things. And so if you haven't paused and say, God, you know, I've got these health problems, but I thank you that I have such and such. Or God, I've had these challenges in my family. I thank you. When we thank God, what are we doing? We're saying, God, I I trust you. We're believing the promise that God gave to his people, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. The Bible never promises that life will be easy that there will be a trial-free life, that there won't be challenges. In fact, it, it tells us just the opposite. It tells us not if we encounter various trials, and the word various is a interesting word. Um, it's the Greek word that we get our word polka dot from. Uh, we get a wide variety of trials in this life. And interestingly, it's the same word in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that's used to describe the uh, colored coat that Joseph wore. We face a lot of multicolored trials in life. They may be financial. They may be family-related. They may be health-related. It's just part of living in a fallen world. Now, some of those trials we brought on ourselves because of our own disobedience. Some health problems that some Christians are listening to me today, they brought upon themselves because they chose to eat poorly. They chose never to get exercise. And so they're experiencing physical difficulty that they might not should have. Now, there are other people who eat right, exercise, do all the right things. They still have problems. Look, it's part of living in a fallen world. 
We all get sick. Uh, we have fallen, frail bodies. Paul had some kind of physical infirmity. In fact, three times he sought the Lord, as recorded in Second Corinthians 12, that God would deliver him from it. And God said, no, my grace is suf- sufficient for you. The fact is, Paul, is that r- oftentimes my grace is shown in the midst of weakness. And isn't that true? You know, when we are in a trial, that trial can either uh, make us you know, disillusioned, or it can drive us from God, or it can drive us to God. Now, the mature response is to come to the Lord. And so, again, when we understand the purpose and meaning of trials, that they are designed to make us more like Christ, uh, in Romans eight twenty eight, a verse that most of us can quote, uh, we ignore the next verse, Romans Eight twenty nine. for whom he foreknew, he predestined. He predestined us for what purpose? To become conformed to the image of his son. So God uses the events in life to make us more like his son. And when we really understand that, that God has a purpose and a plan and nothing is wasted, whether it's a trial I've brought upon myself because of my sin, even there God can redeem the circumstances. Uh, Is that not a principle that he taught in the book of Joel where God said, look, you know, because of your rebellion, you're suffering from the locusts and the line nine nine locusts. And these are problems you, you, you brought on yourself, but there's something that you need to do. And what you need to do is you need to repent. And if you will repent, um, you're going to see real changes brought about in your life. And then God makes them a, a, a fantastic promise that he'll reverse the problems that they had been facing as his people, that he would make up for the years that the, the locusts and the, the nine locusts had brought. And so even in sinful situations where we've brought problems on ourselves, when we face those sins and deal openly and honestly with those sins, God can deliver us. Not to mention, you mentioned in your question about worry and fear. There's an assumption when you say, well, there's no sin in my life, that worry and fear is not sin. And the fact is, is that worry is sin. Um, it, it, it's an awful sin. It's a lack of faith. And again, I'm not here to dump on you and beat you up. I'm here to help you. But you might want to listen to my message from Matthew 6, where I deal with worry and fear. And I think it would be really helpful because what you need to do is you need a renewed perspective because a lot of the ways in which you're thinking are ways that are contrary to Scripture. And God wants to change that because he knows as you think in yourself, that's what you're going to become like. And you need to reprogram your thoughts and renew your mind according to the dictates of of Holy Scripture. But I would start by going to searchthescriptures.org and listening to that message on the Spirit-filled life. And I think that's going to help you a lot. And then I would ask myself, well, where do I specifically need to give some pointed focus? Well, well, why am I so unthankful? Uh, Why haven't I thanked God for my circumstances? Why am I dominated by worry and fear? And then go to Scripture that deal with those subjects and let God renew your mind so that you can have real victory. But the principles on how to um, 
make that a reality or are taught in that message, which I think you'll find very, very helpful. Great question. Let's go to the next. All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And uh, you can email us at tbl at net, Or as you just indicated, the new and improved searchthescriptures.org website now has an opportunity to link and ask a question, as has Barry from Buckhannon, West Virginia. He writes, I am continuing to have an issue with one of the elders of my fellowship in the area of biblical stewardship. I believe tithing is a biblical teaching. I also realize that there is almost no New Testament chapter and verse on this subject. God says it is all his, and I realize that to be absolutely true. I've always been taught and practiced tithing as a starting point concerning the issue of giving money to the local church and the ministries clearly communicating the message of Christ to the world. How do I confront this teaching without being argumentative or divisive? The last two times it's been preached at our church, the pastors made this emphatic statement about tithing and how there is no biblical directive concerning tithing. He preached freedom in Christ and that the teaching of tithing is not biblical and is just one of the many legalistic rules the church has placed on the church. He's a good man. I respect his knowledge of the word, but this one area is becoming a real concern for me. I'm looking for some solid teaching or advice from someone uh, such as you. And I looked for some teaching on the website but could not locate it or just couldn't find it. Well, it is on the website, and it's a recent message that I gave. I believe I gave it the first week in December. And so they're listed there, the most recent messages. And um, I don't know if you can pull up the title for it. I'm not sure what I call it. Uh, But I I, I did use um, certainly Old Testament passages that have full application for today, as well as some New Testament passages that are also extremely helpful. Now, let me just say parenthetically here that there are some Christian people who don't believe that tithing is for today. Uh, Let me also say that in the realm of church history, that's a rather recent view. In fact, uh, in that sermon, I asked people, I gave them a challenge. I said, find me a commentary before 1900 that denies that tithing has no application for today. You'll be hard-pressed. I've not seen one yet. And I have a pretty extensive library, and I have a lot of um, books, some that are very old. Uh, The idea that tithing is not applicable for today is a rather new idea, and I think a wrong idea. Now, there are many Orthodox Christians that that hold to this. Uh, Yeah, it was uh, preached on December the 4th. It's called Establishing Financial Priorities. And I think you'll find that message helpful. You can click on it, and it's available on video or at least on CD, on audio, where you can download it. And some of those are going to be also available on video before too long. They're still uploading that process. Um, But here's the deal. Uh, Tithing was something that was not just done under the law. And so some people would say, well, because something's done during the time of the law, that it has no application for today. And to say that um, we should tithe uh, is to be legalistic. Well, listen, there are some things that are taught under the Mosaic law that are taught nowhere else that I'm sure you wouldn't differ with me concerning its application. If you were to ask your pastor, hey, do you think it's wrong, you know, to commit bestiality? Uh, well, of course it's wrong. Well, on what basis do you argue that? Where is bestiality spoken against in the Bible? Only one book in the book of Leviticus under the Mosaic law. Does God ever mention it again anywhere in the Bible 
in the New Testament? Not once. Are you telling me it has no application for today? No, that's part of God's moral law. It's eternal. It's unchanging. Well, the question becomes, is tithing part of God's moral law? Is this a command that God has for his people, like, you know, gather on the first day of the week? Uh, is that a command? Is that a suggestion? Or is that part of God's moral law? When, when God says, give thanks in all things, for this is, will, is his will for you in Christ Jesus, is that a suggestion or is that part of God's moral law? Oh, you'd say that's part of his moral law. So the question is, is tithing part of God's moral law? Well, it's uh, commenced in the Old Testament through Abraham when he gives a tenth of all that he has to a high priest by the name of Melchizedek. And the Lord Jesus is compared uh, to Melchizedek. In fact, he is said not to be a part of the Aaronic priesthood, but of the priesthood of Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7. And so Melchizedek becomes a type of Christ in that we have no history on him. There's no genealogy on him. He just suddenly appears in the pages of Scripture, and then he's gone. It's like he has no beginning or end, and in that sense, he becomes a type of Christ. Now, some argue that Melchizedek was actually the Lord Jesus in one of his pre-Bethlehem, pre-incarnate appearances. Okay, you know, I... If you want to argue that, that's great. That's not a heresy or anything. But whether he is Christ in a pre-Bethlehem appearance or a type of Christ, and I think the evidence is stronger for the latter than the former, the fact is is that Abraham was giving to Christ. He was giving to the Lord God a tenth. Why didn't Abraham give 1%? Why didn't Abraham give 5%? Why didn't Abraham give 50%? In fact, why didn't he give it all? Well, because Abraham is the father of the faithful, as the New Testament calls him. Uh, He is a model of what a believer should be today. God esteems Abraham, and he makes us part of Abraham's family if we believe like Abraham believes. Well, how did he know? Well, obviously, he consulted God. How does God give faith? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Abraham sought the Lord God, and God revealed to him that he should give a tenth of all that he had. So Abraham commences it. Jacob continues the practice. Moses later commands it. Jesus in the New Testament commends it. He says in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So here you had these Pharisees who, oh, yeah, you know, we tithe. In fact, we tithe right down to the spices in our garden. Here's a cumin plant. Let's take a few cumin leaves and give a tenth of those to the Lord. And, and so they were legalistic in that respect in that they did this, namely tithe, and in the process they didn't show justice and mercy and faithfulness. Then Jesus said, but these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. You should have tithed. He doesn't say that there's any uh, conflict between tithing any more than there in showing justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's all a part of what God has for his people to do. So tithing is something that is done before the law, during the law, after the law. It's commenced by Abraham, continued by Jacob, commanded by Moses, commended by Christ. If that's true, we shouldn't cancel it. 
we shouldn't say it has no application for today. But before you just get up and say, well, tithing is a thing of the past. I don't think we should do that today. And by the way, in this sermon, I briefly hit on it, but I go into more detail in a course I call Financial Fitness God's Way. And we go through what the Bible says about finance. It's a 130-page notebook, and there's six and a half hours of teaching that you can listen to on CD. But there are people, as I point out both in the sermon, but more extensively in that course, who say, well, you know, they didn't give 10%, they gave 13%, or they gave 23%. And I go through that argument and really show that that's not the case, that that's just someone trying to argue why you shouldn't tithe. They'll say, well, if you want to tithe, then give 23% of your income. Listen, before you get up and say it has no application for today, think twice, because Jesus said, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I do believe in grace giving, and by that, I do believe we have a even higher motivation than an Old Testament saint had in that we have a fuller revelation. We have seen actualized and recorded in Holy Scripture what was promised in the Old Testament. So Paul will highlight that in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, two great giving chapters in the New Testament, that because Christ, who was rich, became poor, poor in the sense that he left the glory and splendor of heaven and took on our humanity. And he did that, Paul said, that we might become rich, not rich financially, as the prosperity theologians will quote, but rich spiritually. But Paul says, in light of this, in light of what Jesus did so you could be forgiven, That should be surely a motivation for you to give to the work of the Lord. So we have a higher motivation. Someone's going to say, well, that's just in the Gospels. You know, um, I I don't see it commanded in the epistles. Well, it's certainly alluded to in a general epistle in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. But you tell me where specifically in any of the epistles baptism is commanded. It's not. Now, it's commanded in the Gospels. It's not commanded in the epistles. Now, it's assumed that God's people will be baptized, but it's not commanded anywhere. Does that mean it has no application for today? Of course not. So let me just say this. Uh, You know, there may be some things that you can agree to disagree on, and I don't think you need to be a channel of division in your church. And if your pastor, you know, differs with you on this issue, it's not an issue that I would make... a a test of fellowship. And if you can agree to disagree, then support him and love him and pray for him and, you know, uh, encourage him. And, and I'm sure he's well-meaning as you said, and he's trying to handle the scripture accurately. Uh, and if you can't live with that, then find another church, but don't tear your pastor down because that would be a huge mistake. And you don't, you don't want to do that. Um, so anyway, I hope that helps. But again, that's the short answer. I, I would direct you to our website. Listen to an hour-long teaching on the subject just given on December the 4th. And you can download that into your computer. And I think it will help you and deepen your convictions that you already have. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980. And our next question uh, came in over the Internet. And it's from, uh, I had to actually look where, where this place is. 
It's from a fellow by the name of Jude in Douala, Cameroon, which apparently Cameroon is in Africa and Douala is the largest city Mm. in Cameroon. He writes, uh, I'd like to know what does the Bible say about drinking in wine and uh, drinking wine and getting drunk with wine? Well, a couple of things. Uh, Number one, the Bible specifically prohibits drunkenness and do not be drunk with wine. In the New Testament as well, in passages like 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul says, do not be deceived. Uh, The nature of deception is that when people are deceived, they don't know they're deceived. So he doesn't want any of the Corinthians to be deceived. Do not be deceived. Uh, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, he'll go on to say, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. So drunkenness is not a disease. If it were a disease, then I would be no more responsible for my action than I would be if I contracted leukemia. Uh, It's not a disease. It's a moral sin. And God calls it a sin along with adultery and homosexuality and other things in this list. Now, again, anyone can be forgiven and changed because the next verse says, and such were some of you, but you're washed, sanctified, justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and the spirit of our God. So number one, God specifically prohibits drunkenness in Galatians five nineteen and 20. He calls it a deed of the flesh and that those who practice such things have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And so if your lifestyle is to get high, whether it's on drugs or alcohol, then you have a foolproof positive, if that's your way of life, that you are still driven in control by the flesh and you've never had this birth from above. The more controversial question becomes, well, can Christians social drink today? And my conviction is no, I don't think they should. Now, you cannot say, and I have a whole message on this, and maybe we can get it to you in Cameroon, Africa, a message that I preached in from John chapter 2, a passage that people love to say, well, Jesus drank wine. Um, and I walked through that passage contextually and very carefully. I don't think you can definitively say that the Bible teaches abstinence in this respect. Uh, alcohol was allowed to be given, according to Proverbs 31, to a dying man. Um, we had a friend pass away over the weekend. In the last uh, 24, 48 hours of his life, uh, they came in and gave him morphine to give him some ease from the pain he was feeling in his abdomen. Uh, it was an act of mercy. And so it's an act of mercy to give strong drink to those who are perishing, as Proverbs 31 teaches Uh, Wine was also allowed to be mixed with water. It appears in Paul's letter to Timothy that Timothy was drinking water only. Maybe he wanted to be like John the Baptist and never take any alcohol to his lips. The challenge with that, especially for someone like Timothy who traveled quite a bit, is evident from the New Testament is that you'd be in places where if you drank the water, you'd get sick. And so you take a little wine as well. You add a little wine to the water, it kills the bacteria, it makes it safe to drink. But two things are clear in Scripture. Don't, drink, don't get drunk on wine and don't use strong drink with those exceptions. And so what's strong drink? Well, he's not talking about the distilled alcohols that came centuries later. He is speaking specifically about wine and beer as it would ferment. 
and God prohibited that. I had a man in my office just last week. In fact, he was from Africa, born and raised in Africa. I'm, you know, new Christians had problems with alcohol. And I said, let me, let me ask you a question. I said, would you like to come into a restaurant this week and see me in some restaurant with a bottle of Budweiser on my table and introduce your friend to me as your pastor? He said, well, no, I, I wouldn't like that. I said, why wouldn't you like, well, it just doesn't seem right. Well, I said, understand God doesn't have one standard for you and another for me. I said, let me ask you another question. I said, see that baby bottle you're feeding that little baby with his wife. I said, suppose we were to fill up that up with wine. And I said, what would that have done to you the very first time you drank that much wine? What would it have done to you? He said, I would have gotten a buzz. I said, that's right. Question, does God want a Christian to have a buzz? What's the greatest of all the commandments? When Jesus is asked in Matthew 22, he tells us it's to love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what God says. And so when you got a buzz... You're really not loving God with all of your mind, and it's part of the great commandment, the greatest of all the commandments. All oh, people say, you know, good night. I've been drinking for so long. A glass of wine doesn't give me a buzz anymore. So are you telling me God wants you to uh, sin for a while until your system develops an immunity? And by the way, lay that aside. It has the appearance of evil the day that we live in. Not to mention, we're not to do, in the Bible says, abstain from every appearance of evil, 1 Thessalonians 5. Not to mention, Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Ask yourself honestly, does the beer and alcohol industry today, which you support when you buy their stuff, does it really bring glory and honor and praise to Jesus? I think not. I think it's a wicked industry that is destroying the lives of young people. And what are these kids doing on college campuses? Man, they, you know, they're taking a funnel and putting it in their mouth and pouring booze down it. And these uh, alcohol companies and spring break situations in the next couple months all across America will be there on location, promoting their stuff, encouraging it. They're wicked, wicked, wicked industries. And a Christian need not support it in our day. And not to mention, you're not to do anything that would cause a brother to stumble. Oh, I have freedom to drink a glass of wine. So some teenager comes into your house and you're supposedly a good Christian. Well, Brother Joe has a freedom to drink a glass of wine. Maybe I can too. And he has a glass and he gets behind a wheel of a car and he's slightly impaired and he gets killed or killed someone else. Listen, uh, Christians today, they think they're so intelligent and under the name and banner of freedom that they can drink their booze and everything else. And that's the lukewarmness of the day that we live in. Uh, That's the compromise of the day in which we find ourselves. Uh, Christians all under the banner of freedom and being, you know, liberated, intelligent Christians. And I'm just some knuckle dragging fundamentalist who is too ignorant to know any better and imposing, you know, legalistic, demands on someone else. Hey, listen, I don't know of any Christian who is anointed and operating and functioning under the power of the Holy Spirit who drinks. I don't know any. I don't know any today. Um, I I don't want to do anything that would hinder my relationship with God, my example that God has called me to set as a Christian, not to mention as a pastor, and anything that would... uh, 
take away from the Holy Spirit's work in my life. Now, everyone that you will listen to here on the Moody Broadcast Network, work, there are no exceptions that I am aware of teach abstinence. They get there in different ways, but I believe abstinence is what the Christians should do today. Unless you're, you know, in some third world country and, you know, you're, you're, you're really thirsty and there's no other way but to add, a, you know, a, a, a thimble full of uh, wine to a glass of water to kill the bacteria. Fine. Okay. Or you, you're, you're out in the desert and uh, you got hurt and, oh, man, you, you, you found some abandoned cabin and there's a bottle of whiskey and, and you pour it over your wound to kill the bacteria like Jesus uh, illustrates in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Fine. Okay, but, you know, for a Christian today to, to booze, I think it's a huge mistake, and I would highly discourage it. All right. All right, we've got a live caller who's uh, been very patiently standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, guys. Hey, Dr. Murray, I need some, uh, need some advice. My mother, uh, she attends a church originally. I will leave their name uh, nameless. But... Um, they participate in my misunderstanding, well, their misunderstanding, or I believe strongly, an unbiblical understanding of the, the use of tongues. Uh, their service consumed uh, all, in, all in the use of uh, babbling language as well as uh, their prayer meetings. Uh, she likes everything of the church, but this, this is bothering her greatly. Uh, is that a deal breaker? Should I counsel her finding a church? Uh, she's starting to feel that way at, at, at herself, and I'll just listen to what she got to say. Well, two things. Number one is get my hand out. Someone asked a tongues-related question. In fact, I was shot an email this morning saying, hey, can I still get that hand out? Yes. I had taught a course on spiritual gifts in the church, and Section 6 deals with the sign gifts in the New Testament. There are four that are listed Miracles, healings, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Get that handout. It's about 15 pages long. We'll be happy to send it to you as an attachment to your email address, and you can read through that. And I think you could share it with your mom, and it would be a great education for you. Uh, Number two, I would say this. Um, There are not only issues of tongues. I guarantee there are other theological issues that are going on in that fellowship that maybe your mom just hasn't been exposed to yet. Almost always, it's a rare exception. Uh, Almost always when a church teaches and advocates the use of tongues, there are other doctrines that accompany uh, that whole thing because they tend to be experience-oriented churches, and they justify and build doctrine on experience. Now, there's nothing wrong with experience. God gives us a lot of things to experience in this life, but our experience should always be evaluated in light of the Scriptures. We put our experience under the authority of Scripture, not over the authority of Scripture. So someone says, well, I spoke in tongues. It must be from God. Well, obviously not. Or I spoke in tongues, therefore you ought to speak in tongues. Well, obviously not. One, Satan is a great counterfeiter. He counterfeits every gift in Scripture, even the sign gifts. Satan can heal. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse speaks of men who will come and do great signs and wonders in his name. And uh, very clearly, these men are not representing the Lord God, and yet people are healed. So Satan is a great counterfeiter, number one. And number two, it's certainly not God's will for everyone to speak in tongues. When Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 12 a, a number of rhetorical questions, because when the Corinthians were coming together, they were in a fellowship, 
especially where all the different gifts of the Spirit were represented. And by the way, the gift of tongues, along with interpretation, was an essential gift to the early church. It was a sign gift. Um, It was a sign gift not to those who believe, but to those who do not believe. So God did certain gifts, gave certain sign gifts to his church as the church's foundation was being laid. But if someone came into a service and didn't have the gift of interpretation, then the gift was meaningless. And so if someone spoke in a tongue, and again, I go through this carefully in my handout, if therefore the whole church should be assembled together and all speak in tongues and some ungifted or unbeliever enters, will he not say you're crazy, you're mad? And the answer is, yes, he will. By the way, the very first exposure I had to a group of evangelical Christians as I was a student in high school and I was invited to a coffee house and everybody was speaking in tongues. I thought, man, these people are weird. Uh, Was I edified? No, I thought they were, this is crazy. What is this language? There I was, an ungifted man, an unsaved man, listening to people speak in a so-called tongue. But he says, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters in, he's convicted by all. He's called to account to all and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. When there's a clear articulated message, then the unbeliever can be convicted by that message and in the end be converted and fall on his face and worship God, as he'll say. So when you had someone speaking in tongues, Paul gave some very clear guidelines He said only uh, one or two in a given service. He said, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or the most three. Uh, So two or three in a given service and each in turn, that is one at a time, not everybody at once. And let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. Let him speak to himself and to God. Keep quiet. Don't speak in your tongue. And again, tongues was a real language in the New Testament, which is what I walk through today. And there are other doctrines, I guarantee, like losing your salvation, that will probably almost guaranteed be taught in that church because it's experience-driven. There will be gender issues that will be compromised. They'll advocate women pastors and just a host of other issues. So to me, it's a deal-breaker, not in terms of me loving people who differ with me, But I want to be in a church where the teaching is sound, where I can bring some unbeliever, because part of my role in a local assembly is to be involved in the Great Commission and winning people to Christ. A lot more questions that came in. We just didn't get to them today, but God willing, maybe we can explore these issues next week. I hope you have a great day. If uh, you don't have a church to attend, I invite you this Sunday to Community Bible Church, 638 Paris Island Gateway in Buford. We have two services at 9, 15, and 11. God bless you. Have a fantastic day in Christ.